Welcome to episode number 386 of the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more, doing what we can to improve in this life, understanding a bit and connecting with individuals or experts in their field. On this one here, we have the author of this book, Think Bigger, How to Innovate. The author is Sheena Iyengar. She's professor at Columbia Business School, the S.T. Lee Professor of Business in the Management Department there and the best-selling author of The Art of Choosing, which was from 2010, I recall this book. She's a leading expert on the study of innovation, choice, leadership, and creativity, and regularly consults with a range of organizations on methods for innovation. Sheena, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to have you on. Now, one thing I always like to check with everybody is the path to where you are currently. How would you describe what led you into this category versus some other random category like accounting or who knows what it would be? You mean what led me to become a professor in the business school in in general or yes. in the area of choice and innovation? Area, area of choice and innovation. Oh, that's a big question. Yes. Well, I will say that the best choice I ever made was to study choice. Um, <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, you know, it's I could tell that story in lots of ways. I suppose if I were to tell that story from the perspective of fate, I would say I was born to study choice because I was a blind Indian American woman um, who was trying to figure out how to navigate cultures and the two cultures had very different views on choice. I was a blind person trying to figure out what choices I could have available to me and what choices I could create. Um, so that's one way of saying it, that I was just in, instinctively as a function of my circumstances of my birth, I was drawn to everything related to choice and innovation. You could say it was serendipity. I, um, When I was a uh, PhD student at Stanford, I knew I was very interested in the study of motivation. Mm -hmm. And I met Mark Lepper and Amos Tversky, who were the famous people on the study of choice and the study of intrinsic motivation. And I, you know, essentially through their guidance began to realize that choice was the single most important topic that had both been studied quite a bit and yet understudied. And and so that became my opportunity as a PhD student to pick something where I could make a difference. And then you could say, well, I chose it because I realized that as given my background, given my interests, uh, given the training that I got from um, a social psychologist as well as a cognitive psychologist, um, I had a unique perspective to offer to the study of choice and how to create choices. And so those were the things that led me, uh, you know, I guess little by little to do this. That's pretty cool. Now, one topic of interest is how does choice connect to thinking bigger? And is the average individual thinking bigger? Could they do more in this category? So choice has two parts to it mm -hmm. or choosing has two parts to it one is what we do every day whether consciously or subconsciously which is picking and finding right I, I need something i want something what are the options out there and once i find it i pick it the second is creating choosing is essentially always an act of invention right you're choosing what sentence to speak right now that's an act of creativity 
um, you're you're choosing how to go about your day, how to solve your day-to-day sort of everyday little habits that you have or routines that you go through, you're often engaging in an act of improvisation, which is an act of creativity. The My earlier work, the, Art of Cho- the book, The Art of Choosing, was all about how we pick and find and how picking and finding has become really complicated for modern day individuals because we've had a real revolution in the last 50 years on choice. Essentially, we're, we're living in a world where we're bombarded with a lot of choice, a lot of information, some of which is real, some of which is fake um, or just noisy. Um, the Think Bigger is not a descriptive book. It's a prescriptive book. Think Bigger is purpose is to help people create choices. That what do you do when there is no known solution for your problem? How do you create meaningful choices? And that could be meaningful choice for you as an individual, like I need to find my romantic partner. How do I find that person? That's actually a creativity exercise. Or how do I create my career? Or how do I come up with a competitive advantage for my startup or my business, uh, given the innovation marketplace? And so it's a it's a choice making choice creating toolkit for people. Right. I like that it connects to building creativity. Creativity has always been very important to me that when you're creating, it's you're setting a stage for yourself. You're representing to other people what you value. You're putting a stamp out there of your internal world to the external. It's a real statement of short uh, sorts. And so to do that is I I feel like it connects with self-esteem. The more you create that which connects with you, you're building your self-esteem in the process. Would you connect creativity to self-esteem in some way? Yes, I would. And I now want to return because this is related to a question you asked me uh, just a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this relates to your question of are people thinking bigger enough or could they be doing more of that? And I think what happens is that a lot of people think they're either a creative type or an analytical type. And they very much cut themselves off from creativity when they describe themselves as not being the creative sort, as if they're people born with a certain kind of brain for creativity or not. And yet research shows there's no such thing as a creative or an analytical type. Every single one of us is being creative from the moment we're born. Every time you utter a sentence, every time you figure out a path to wherever you're going or you're creating a recipe, we're all engaging in creativity. And so my goal in Think Bigger is to help people see that you actually can do it. You don't have to rely on magic um, or rely on these people that you think are the creative sorts. You actually, there is a framework and a toolkit by which anyone anywhere can generate a solution for whatever problem they're confronting. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it absolutely can help anyone build a better self-esteem. That makes sense. Now, early on in the book, you describe a six-step process Mm -hmm. for this. And you have a cool image in the book for that, which is nice. And can you explain to us the six-step process and what it entails as far as uh, the roadmap to thinking bigger? So it all starts with step one, which is finding the problem you want to solve. 
Um, as Einstein once said, if I had an hour to save the planet, I would spend the first 55 minutes thinking about the problem and the last five minutes thinking about the solution. Right. And too often we do, we don't spend enough time really thinking about and understanding what is that problem we're trying to solve. Because so, uh, defining it in a way that's meaningful and solvable is the first really, really important step. And, and I should say for each of these steps, I have different exercises you can do and techniques for how to do them. Mm -hmm. The second step is once you've found your problem and you've defined it, you now break it down. What are the leading causes um, for why this problem hasn't been solved? So I have you come up with the sort of three to five most important subparts of your problem. The third is compare wants, so that before you actually jump into searching for things that can help you solve for the problem, have you answer the question, if I were to find the perfect solution, how would I want it to feel? Because we often get too stuck on just finding a solution to the problem, and then we find it and we don't like it. And that's because there are multiple solutions to the same problem. And what differentiates them is the feeling that the solution generates. And essentially, it's that feeling that ends up serving as your selection criteria, provided it's solving the problem. Then the fourth step is searching in and out of the box. And that's essentially where you literally ask yourself for each subproblem, who has solved this problem? Not just in my industry, but I make you go out of industry. I even make you go back in history to identify different solutions for each of your subparts of your problem. Because that's actually how you think out of the box. It's by going into other boxes. Then step five, we call the choice map. And the choice map is the tool for actually generating solutions. Think of the choice map or choice mapping as the alternative to brainstorming. If you have a good choice map, like your prototypical choice map and think bigger can generate for you more than 3,000 unique solutions to any given problem. And so it does give you a lot of choice. And if you've noticed in step three, we actually have already embedded in there also how to select amongst the choices so that you're not overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And step six is the third eye test. Once you have a solution, how do you know how this solution feels, not just to you, but to others. And when I say feel, I don't mean go out and ask people, hey, can I tell you my idea? Now tell me if you like it. No, this is before we get into any sort of a stage of putting it out in the marketplace. We're still talking about an ideation phase. This is where I go out, describe my idea, and I use a variety of techniques to understand if you see what I see because it's not an idea until there's alignment in the way we see the idea. That's true. The third eye test was the one that spoke most to me when I was looking at it initially, because it takes in perspective from others. But I do like in the book, you mentioned a few times about uh, where you include others or where you are kind of leading the way firsthand. How important is that to have parts of the process done on your own end before you bring in uh, direct feedback from others. It's very important to first think about it yourself and then you bring in inputs from others. And that's true even when you're working on the problem with a group. Always first think by yourself, then share.
It increases the quality of the ideas and the quantity of the ideas by at least threefold. This makes sense. I like the idea also about uh, bringing items from outside the box, which is uh, what you look for and then past people. It could be someone from 300 years ago that was trying something similar to what you're trying, for example, and bringing in their way of doing it or their angle. Suddenly it's no longer limited to your framework. How much of this is about not being limited to your own internal framework? It's absolutely it, what you just said. It is getting out of your echo chamber and searching at how other people have solved the problem. Right. You know, like Reed Hastings got out of his echo chamber of <laughs> how people were consuming, you know, movies at home. And he said, why can't it be like going to the gym? Hence, we had a brand new fee structure. Um, for consuming entertainment at home and notice how that has stuck. That is currently the dominant model. And it all started with gym membership. Right. There's always starting a starting point where a risk was taken or something was brought up that was different. But as I can see in your book, it's not so much risk, but uh, steps along the way such that it's not a huge risk what you're doing, but you're checking, okay, what's there? What's the available information? Uh, what else has someone done that is similar to what I want to do? So you're actually lowering the risk along the way by doing all these steps. Absolutely. I call it calculated risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a nice reduction of that. Now, are there any key people that first come to mind? There were some in the book, but that come to mind as an example of a person that may have used a roadmap like this or that showcased a thought process of theirs that followed a path like this? See, I always challenge people to identify any any innovation that any innovation that succeeded that didn't use this. Maybe they weren't conscious of it, but they all used this fundamental method, whether it was the guy who created Lady Liberty, Picasso's method for cubism, Paul McCartney's creation of the song Yesterday to the invention of the car, um, you know, to basically any, the internet, Reed Hasting, the Amazon. I mean, I, I could go on with, but it would be very difficult for you to identify an innovation that has stuck and scaled that didn't, that wasn't ultimately a combination of old ideas that came together to solve a useful problem. Right. And that's now, how I define innovation. Right. Is it very difficult, the idea of a person being an island of sorts, is it very challenging for a person to completely disregard the outside elements, what's going on and how things have been done, and just build something of their own that's not really connected? Is that a bad idea? Is the island a losing battle? Well, what does that mean coming up with something that's devoid of everybody else? I mean, I understand that's a really sexy <laughs> idea, but what does that really mean? I mean, if you think about your brain, think of it as a giant inventory system or a library system, and you've been collecting information bits you're, since the day you were born, you know, maybe subconsciously, and you're just constantly adding and adding and adding to all these information bits. 
um, to the extent that you're able to combine information bits in a way that others never thought of, sure, that's unique to you. But you're not going to come up with something out of thin air if you don't have anything up there. Right. I guess it's not really doable in that way. About the only thing you can do potentially independent of the past and the present is if you discover something. So you happen to discover, you know, a new herb or a new thing in the environment or a new animal or something that just nobody somehow was ever aware of. Um, and that's possible, although very unlikely at this stage, given how much exploration we've already done as human beings. Uh, but undoubtedly, whatever idea you have today will be a combination of old ideas. Mm-hmm. I came up with one example that I wanted to try running through the roadmap to see what some of the pieces would look like for it. So an uh, example of this, let's say I was co-hosting my program with somebody else, wanted to add them in for like a one day a week show where they were co-hosting and then we would bring on individuals. And the problem is, is that doable or can that be a, a path that's functional? So how, how do I, I create a successful co-hosting show, co-hosted show? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that could be your problem statement. That would be the problem statement. And what would be your sub problems? What would be, what are the challenges you think to that? Uh, some would be uh, having the, the person on the same page time-wise, let's say per week. Okay. So how do we coordinate um, alignment of schedule plus thought processes? Mm-hmm. And then um, at this step, would you, would you look at, is there any other examples like this or that would be at a later step to look uh, at Oh, You could. I mean, in industry, you would look at Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. Mm-hmm. That's an example. But, I, you know, in terms of out of industry, I might look at other activities where they have had like a collaboration between two people that was unexpected. Like, I don't know, how did two leaders of companies that seemingly hated each other ended up <laughs> um, um, counterintuitively collaborating or two leaders of two countries. Um, right. That could be an, a way to look in history for different ways, tactics that they used. Right. Examples like that, yeah, collaborations. And then um, third one would be uh, making it its own thing such that it's like, you know, Wednesdays with person, for example, and um, it, it becomes a, how to make it a regular item that is its own fixed in place that is, it's like known as that. Okay. And how yeah. do we, how do we, um, what are different examples of branding something that's not, that is uh, created by more than one individual? Right. Because okay. we usually think of branding as more so more of an individual activity, and you're saying, how do you create a brand around something created by more than one? Right. Um, and uh, I mean, you have again examples of different TV shows. Um, right. You know, Seinfeld. Um, you know, different shows like 60 Minutes, or um, you know, where it's a group. Mm -hmm. 
how did they do that? I mean, we, we, we know certain names associated with, say, 60 Minutes, but it's 60 Minutes is bigger. Um, right. And you certainly have um, companies that do that, too. So what did they do? So, like, Steve Jobs created a brand that went beyond him. Um, Think Different was the campaign behind that. Oh, yeah. Right, that's a good example. So now we have had some of the problems involved in that. Mm -hmm. And then if we were to go to step three, comparing wants. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, so we found, we already did the step one, step two, and step four, where we started to search out of the box for yes. different ways that people solved it. Compare wants would be um, beforehand, I would just say to you for your big problem, what, how do you want your co your co-hosting podcast uh, or venture to feel? If you were successful, what should that solution feel like? And then it would include both individuals and we would compare our, our wants on that. Yeah, you would say, how do you want to feel? Then how would you want your target audience to feel? Um, and I don't know if you have other stakeholders, but you know, right. at least your main stakeholders, how would you want them to feel? What are right. the most important adjectives? Oh, uh, it'd be informed, um, somewhat conversationally uh, entertained a bit, but more informed, I would say. Okay, so it seems like your main wants is that ultimately your solution should feel educational mm -hmm. and should feel accessible. Yes. That's mm -hmm. And then he would check with the other individual and then match them up to see if there's a match up there. Now, for the choice map, uh, we have our sub-problems, and then how is the choice map involved in this? So we just started the process, right? We came up with the problem and the sub-problems, and then we started to look at one or two examples of ways in which people have solved the problem. So what you'd want to do is get a lot more examples, and then you would start to just mentally combine. So let's say it was, you know, uh, the coordination between Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher and some of the tactics of say 60 minutes. Right. And so you would start asking yourself, how could I imagine putting those pieces together in a way that's relevant for the problem I'm trying to solve and the topic that I'm trying to talk about. It's about bringing in some of the pieces from each item that's already working that fits our scenario. Yes. This is a great thing. I remember one, I think it was a lyricist that he talked about how he would, he would, he would take items from individuals he thought was great from the past, and he would bring that greatness to himself. And so it was no longer out of reach in a way. We can do that. Mm -hmm. We have that ability. So okay, and then uh, the last part that will be connected to this is the third eye test. Let's say we had pieced these elements together. What would that involve for me and or me and my? So co let's say you have an idea. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you've got your new podcast idea and it's you and you know, some other person and mm. you've got some vision that's mm. in your head. Well, now you would just walk up to people from different walks of life and you would describe the idea and you wouldn't ask them whether they like it or dislike it. You just ask them, how would you improve this? Because that's actually answering for you the question of what seemed to be missing for them. 
And then about a week later, you walk up to them and you say, hey, um, can you describe my idea back to me? How would you describe it? And then you see how they describe it and you learn what stuck, what didn't stick, what their interpretations were and what improvements did they make. Right. That makes sense. And you're letting their story help you along in a way because they probably have worked through some pieces, maybe not exactly like what we are doing, but maybe a, some 20, 30% of what they have done in the past connects with what we are planning to do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Let me showcase, I'm gonna showcase the roadmap on the screen there just so people can see kind of what it looks like. There is that. Okay, wonderful, that is cool. That is a good way to look through things. Now, I noticed you picked out words um, that describe something like our, what I was looking to present. And in part of the book about comparing wants, you also have a section of many different words uh, describing desires that uh, you'd want, uh, like groundbreaking or rational or tolerant. Mm -hmm. And how can someone solidly pick out these words or do people usually have a sense of these immediately? People often do have a sense of it immediately. Notice how you did. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to think about it though for a little bit because maybe, you know, it does prompt you to ask yourself, well, what do I want? You know, how do I want to feel? And it's good for you to surface that and to take the time to figure that out. You know, like you're starting a startup or you're doing a career change. What do you actually want to get out of this career? So you're not going to get everything. What are the most important feelings you want to have that solution give you? Hmm. Actually, on that one, that's an important point. From what you have seen in past examples, what are some traits of individuals where when they started something, it was more likely to progress for a long period of time versus it would disappear after six months or a year? Are there any certain qualities that you noticed the, the tone of how someone would describe it or the planning that they had, what made it more sustainable in the long term? Well, we often tell people to follow your passion. And, you know, if I asked you what you're passionate about, it's not clear you know. I mean, you might think you know, but really the only way you know is by testing yourself. And so one of the things I do and think bigger is I do what I call the passion test where you um, have to take a three hour period and just describe your idea over and over and over and over again in one minute or less. Mm -hmm. And you know, if after three hours you've described it a good 40 times, you're either becoming really motivated or you're discovering that you really don't like it. If you're going to do really well at something and you're going to do it for a long time, it, it doesn't have to be my three-hour test. You know, you could test yourself for a week and just find random strangers to describe it to or find friends, etc. But it is really important for you to do a test. And because in order for you to do really well on that, you're going to have to be able to be excited about it day in and day out. 
And so you have to test to see if this is the one, because all of us can be passionate on the face of it for about many things. And all of us could be good at many things. This reminds me of something. Does this connect with the idea that if you, a suggestion is made to write out your goals towards something possibly every night before you go to sleep or every morning when you wake up and part of that can be somewhat of a reminder or building momentum towards your thing. But is another part of that, the fact that if you are able to do that uh, day after day, that means it really speaks to you versus if you, after four days, you felt like it doesn't, it doesn't match you. You'd probably quit at that point. It's almost like a self mirror to see if it is. Absolutely. You. And it also does teach you something though, every day when you're writing out your goals, cause you're learning something new from that day and it's prompting you to focus on what you learned that day. And then you're building on whatever you learned yesterday. Mm -hmm. This makes sense. Now, Creativity is iterative. Right. I was actually going to somewhat connect with that. It's a wonderful thing. I have I have somewhat of a networking mind, so I like when things connect with other items, like in a network type of chart versus a linear chart. It, it's more interesting to me, and so it builds. It's like a compounding interest kind of thing category because let's say you have let's say you're an article writer and you write three articles. And then your fourth article, you can link to two of your past articles, which you couldn't do when you had only one. There's something very cool about that. And so it builds on itself. Are, do creative people have, or not, I don't want to say creative people, because as you described, others can also, everyone has creativity within them. If someone goes on the creative path more so, do they get uh, extensive benefits further out? Is it more of a long-term, further out in time kind of, effort. I mean, learning how to do creative problem solving helps you no matter what you do. And it's an important skill to have, um, particularly for all of us today. I mean, we live in a world where we're constantly bombarded with a lot of information, a lot of choice, some of which is real, some of which is fake, some of which is irrelevant. Uh, you know, navigating everyday life and decision-making does require all of us to learn how to be better creative problem solvers. On this bombardment you mentioned there, I think that currently as we are in March of 2023, the bombardment is uh, very, very large across every platform, every public location. The amount of input coming in is off the charts. Is the item that's limiting individuals from making clear choices for themselves more so their inability of their own or is it almost like them battling with outside forces on a regular basis well i think it's both right we do have limits and all this but yet we can't stand still we have to still deal with all the external inputs and the inputs are only getting bigger now with ai getting even more advanced so I think it becomes really important for every individual to essentially every day have a way of thinking, okay, what's the problem I need to solve today? Or what are the problems I need to solve today? Because you can no longer be a pure information consumer. You have to be an information curator. Right. This links with something you described in the book from Trotter, where you see what you value or speaks to you. Maybe it could be on uh, public media or whatnot. 
and you can steal it shamelessly or copy it to your own existence in some form and you just have to be very careful about uh, what you take in and being more of a only like consuming consuming with the intent of creating versus just consuming is that a fair way to say it mm-hmm. yeah that's that sounds right okay it's always been very important for me to creating uh takes the front stage because i have always been not inclined towards if i'm in the audience i'm much more i'm replaceable whereas if i'm on stage you can't do that same thing with the person on the stage in that way i agree here now speaking of actually i want to throw that in being on stage uh, you have been on stage multiple times speaking at the ted conference in front of uh, multitudes of individuals what are a couple of items you take away from that time recall from that time and is it very magnanimous does it does it feel very large or does it feel like just voicing yourself as you would hmm that's an interesting question um As long as I feel like I have something to offer, I like being on stage. I I feel I love going out there and talking to people and I get energy from them and their questions also gets me to think about things. So yeah, I, I like being on stage. It doesn't matter whether it's a small group or a large group. That's fair. I mean, that's just something about self self image because when that maybe the individual that would be more tied to the size of the group there would also be more worried on the back end about how things go or representing a certain way versus the person that's more uh, full in themselves it's not so much about numbers and how it's perceived but what what they are expressing to the outside world mm-hmm internally there now what has been i checked this for because writing a book is very substantial what would you say is one of the challenges of or one of the most notable challenges come up with when putting together a whole message in a book what is the what is the biggest hold up in the process Oh, God, you just keep <laughs> writing and rewriting and you're not sure if it's clear and you're not sure whether that was the right way to organize the information or there's another way to organize the information. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a creativity exercise. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's like about putting it together and having the right, maybe, uh, programs to accumulate all the pieces. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Now, you mentioned also, you mentioned uh, Steve Jobs comes up and Bill Gates comes up in the book. Can you describe a bit about um, Bill Gates and or the tech company founders and how they participate in the process of choosing their next steps of what their companies might do? You mean right now or in the book? Uh, In the book. Oh, so... You know, Bill Gates is an interesting example of somebody who understood or who learned how to 
surface his his wants, which is actually what really helped him uh, with the creation of Microsoft. So when he was a student at Harvard, he his buddy Paul Allen saw this um, advertisement in a magazine for people to make uh, software for a new uh, desktop called Altair. Mm-hmm. And so they submitted a proposal and they, they won and they got to make this software. And originally Bill Gates thought that he was going to make a lot of money by having people buy Altair and as part of buying Altair they would then get his software. And he got really angry when he discovered that people would take his software off of Altair and then pirate it and then were putting it on all kinds of other machines. And he actually wrote originally wrote some pretty nasty letters about that. Uh, But then, and so he even at one point nearly gave up, um, went back to Harvard, tried to sell his software to Altair, but Altair wasn't doing very well. So they turned down his offer of him selling the software to them for like (laughs) $6,000. But then he was invited to a conference of um, these, what they were called hobbyists back then, that were just these new kids that were working on computers and software. And he discovered that as he was walking the halls, everybody was using his software. It didn't matter what machine they had, they were all using his software and swapping it. So they were stealing his IP. But rather than getting mad about it, he then finally understood that, you know what? Actually, I'm on to something. I have the monopoly. <laughs> and so that's when he ended his agreement with Altair and wrote another letter to the computer software users and said, hey, I'm glad you like the software. More is coming. And that's essentially the birth of Microsoft. He starts creating alliances with IBM, etc., and gives birth to software. And he recognizes that what his stakeholders really want wanted was not something that was attached to one machine, but that they wanted something that could be, you know, more flexible and be used on lots of machines. Right. That's a key point, finding the distinctive feature there. I noticed that you described they have they had the garage that was their location of uh, building something. Mm-hmm. Each person has their painters might have their, I don't know, basement garage somewhere special. How important is it to have some sort of type bubble type place that it's your own space for creative output that you control? Well, I think it's important that your space feel comfortable, your space be a place where you can think and also get access to other information, whether it be through other people or through other means that you might need when you're innovating. We often have companies that spend a lot of money making space, you know, extra fancy or have lots of bells and whistles in it. And, you know, that's probably a fun place to work at and certainly a nice place to show off. But there's actually no evidence to suggest that how many gadgets you have in your space is going to make you more creative. There we go. There's all all the people out there who want to put 50 gadgets in your place. It may not do it. It may not make the the big (laughs) difference. Somebody's like, I need 14 different things in the corners of my, that might not be the item. And for somebody that's maybe more minimalist, it might just be having a couple of items or a plant, certain things that speak to them in a way or propel them forward. 
that's pretty cool. Now, I have two last questions in relation to the content and the message. One of them is, um, when someone, how can someone look at choices they have made? And it's not as much for myself, but look at them as they made good decisions and believe in them versus uh, questioning like step two or step four when, when they're at step seven. How can someone have that like uh, determined connection? Well, I actually movement? think I actually think that having a choice map is really useful for this reason as well, because mm -hmm. you understand how you got to your idea and you understand why you chose it. And so you know what problem it's solving for, you know what sub-problems it solved for, you know what pieces you combine together. So that if at any point you're experiencing a challenge, you don't have to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. You can actually figure out what part of this isn't working as well as you intended. So that then you can go back and say, okay, how do I edit just that part? That's pretty good. It makes me think of almost like audio editing or video editing. It's not that different where you have all the elements, the steps you did. And then if you really had an issue with something, you could go right back to just that one part and make an adjustment. It's not so final in a way. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not bad. I like analogies. Sometimes analogies help to imagine something more clearly, but without the analogy, it's hard to stick it to something that's practical, which is fair. Now, and then the last item I would want to check is a two-part. Who are some of the people who have guided you most along your path? And following up to that, what is the takeaway message you would want people to pull from your book for their day-to-day -day activity? Well, I have to thank my two sort of right arms. One is Bill Duggan. My colleague always there for me. Uh, um, always, I always am able to run things by him. And then there's my PhD student Carl Blaine Horton, who has been, I mean, at every step of the way, helping me put this together. So those are two people that I value very highly in the Think Bigger venture. Mm -hmm. uh, really, what my intention is in writing this book is I want anyone anywhere to know that whatever problem they have, they can pick up a book and you have a toolkit that can help you create a solution. This really is the method by which you can come up with your best ideas and that coming up with great ideas is not the purview of special people or special places. Anybody can think bigger. This is a wonderful message. And the book is highly supported by individuals across the book, such as Satya Nadella of Microsoft and Barry Salzberg of Deloitte and Michael Bloomberg, who is well known. Professor Shinya Iyengar, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show, providing a bit about this book here, Think Bigger, your new book, How to Innovate, and guiding us a bit about how to make choices and map them out such that we have all the pieces and it fits us moving into the long term. Thank you so much. Glad to. And we are out.